Great to see everybody. Good morning, Gresham Bible Church. Uh, if you haven't already done so, please have a Bible in front of you, whether that be a real old school, old fashioned physical Bible, that'd be my preference. Or if you have a phone, that's great too. Just don't check your fantasy football scores. Turn to Colossians chapter two. We're going to be in verses six through 23. And our passage today, just have this in your mind, our passage today is gonna highlight for us just how religious people are. It was true around the time of Colossae, right? Who this letter was written to, Christians in the city of Colossae. It's true for us today in and around Gresham, Oregon. People are inherently religious. And when I say that, I wonder if your inner voice is like, nah, I don't agree with you, Mike. And at some level, I hear you. It feels like this world is becoming less and less religious with secularism. In our post-Christian culture, religion seems to be losing its place. But even if that's happening in America and the West, a recent study shows that's not true for the whole world. A recent study by the Pew Research Group found that 85%, 85% of the world identifies with a particular religion. Think about the world's population, 85% of that population. That is a lot of people that identify as religious. And for those who say they're not religious and maybe in and around our city, that's maybe be more the norm than elsewhere. Even if someone says they're not religious, don't you hear it a lot in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood? They're spiritual. Even if someone is not identifying as religious, there's an ever-increasing spirituality of picking and pulling these things to help me live my life and be fulfilled. So whether it's religion or spirituality, that is an inherent part of who we are individually and collectively as a people. And again, that's the setting that we're gonna see here in our text today, and that's the setting each of us bring with us into our gathering today as well. People are inherently religious and spiritual. And we're gonna see, though, in our passage, like we've been seeing throughout Colossians, and we'll continue to see the supremacy of Jesus. We're gonna see that all the other spiritualities of the world can't give you the fulfillment that can only be found in Christ Jesus. So let's bow together in prayer before we come to God in his word. So please agree with me in prayer. Father, we need you this morning. We need to hear from you today. Give us hearts to confess, repent, and believe. Whatever we brought with us here today, Lord, I pray that we will lay it down at the foot of your cross. Please quiet any noisy or anxious hearts. Focus us on you and eternal things today. Father, I need your help as an instrument preaching your word. May I communicate your word clearly and lovingly, and may we listen as worshipers. Open your word to us and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, follow along with me. Have a Bible in front of you. Follow along as I'm going to read our text aloud. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. This is God's word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it 
that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but... They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Wow. Here's where we're going to go today. Two different movements in our text. First is verses 6 through 15. We're going to hear a command, wait, and a command to see. And then the second movement in our text is verses 16 through 23, and that's the substance belongs to Christ. So first, walk and see. Notice how our text begins. We all know this for those who are Bible students. What's the therefore, therefore, right? The therefore, there's two of them in our text. That's the division of our outline. There's one therefore, verses 6 through 15, and a second therefore, verses 16 through 23. This therefore, Paul is saying, so then. So that means he's advancing an argument. And the argument he's advancing, just kind of let your eyes drift a little bit back up the page to chapter 1, verse 28, What's it say? What was Paul's aim of his ministry? Chapter 1, verse 28, Paul's aim was warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So our text is going to show us what it means, what it looks like, what's the basis for becoming more and more mature in Christ. All right, we've been in Colossians now for about a month, and for those of you that are doing the read-through challenge, I hope it's been life-giving to you. It has been to me. Up until now, until verse 6 of chapter 2, what's one thing we haven't seen not even one time yet? Can anybody say? What's one thing we haven't seen? We haven't seen one imperative. 
We haven't seen one command of so then like a response to it. Instead, to this point in Colossians, in this book, that's all about the supremacy of Christ, we've seen Paul over and over focus on who Christ is and what he has done in the gospel before he gives any command, any imperative in how we're supposed to respond or live to this. And so that brings us to our text today in verse six, wherein, as you've been reading through the whole book, you can't help but notice, like the tone shifts here, doesn't it? Starting in chapter two, verse six, there's a different language, a different emphasis, again, a different tone. And the tone shifts from Paul to this group of Colossian believers who he's never even met, but the tone shifts to one of warning, to exhortation, to imperatives. The language has some weight to it from here on out in the rest of our book. And the reason why is that Paul is going to call out, he's going to draw out the implications of this glorious gospel that he shared with us, because the gospel has implications in our lives. And so first command, first imperative, it's amazing. You can't make it up. What's the first command Paul gives to the Colossians? Right in verse six, it's walk. Walk in Christ is the first command he gives in view of this gospel. And it's a particular type of walk, not just walk however you want. It's a walk as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. So it's a walk that's in a particular kind of way. And again, we can't miss this or gloss that over just because of familiarity. Paul is saying the same gospel that saves you is the same gospel you are to walk in. The same gospel you received is the same gospel you're to walk in. That's his first imperative, his first command here in the book of Colossians. And the reason why is because the Christian life, I think you'd agree with me, the Christian life is a gospel-centered kind of life from beginning to end. You never graduate from the gospel as a Christian. That's what Paul's saying in here. You are to walk in this gospel. And we just have to see the fullness of it. This is amazing in Colossians. It's all over scripture. One other place, probably a lot of in this room, one of our favorite passages in all of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a clear teaching on the gospel and resurrection life. How does the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 start? The same way as in our text. There should be a slide. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses one and two say this, just listen to it again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Same idea. The gospel you received is the same gospel that you walk in. And so if they're to walk in this gospel that they received, how did they receive it? And again, I want us to see, we're Gresham Bible Church, I want us to see it on the pages of Scripture in front of you. In verse 6, how did they receive this gospel, the same gospel they're to walk in? They receive Christ Jesus as what, does verse 6 say? As Lord. That summarizes all that Paul has been saying to this point in Colossians, doesn't it? 
that Christ reigns, that Christ is the very image of God, that Christ is the mystery of God, meaning that through Christ, through the cross, that's how God reconciles Jew and Gentiles to himself. It's this same gospel that they're to walk in, is the same gospel they received, and the gospel is Christ Jesus as Lord. Christ Jesus as Lord for all who would believe in him, for all of us today too. So this is the Christ Christians receive, Christ Jesus the Lord, and this is the Christ Christians are to walk in because Jesus is Lord and supreme above all things. Amen. Colossians is amazing. So then there's all these questions in our minds, right? Okay, well, what does that actually look like to walk in Christ Jesus in this kind of way? Paul anticipates our question, and then there's verse 7. Paul describes this kind of walking in verse 7. How does he describe it? It's this kind of walking that's deeply rooted like a tree is rooted in Christ, like our call to worship passage from Jeremiah 17 called out. Walking in this kind of way with Christ Jesus as Lord, it's also a different illustration. It's like a building that's set and established on a firm foundation. And also walking in Christ in this kind of way is one that's overflowing with thankfulness. It's abounding in thanksgiving, the end of verse 7 says. So to walk in Christ in this kind of way, it means nothing less than walking in the gospel. Not walking beyond the gospel, but walking deeper and deeper into the gospel, like a tree whose roots grow deeper and deeper and firmer and stronger and more life-giving. We walk in the gospel because we've received Christ Jesus the Lord. And you know what's amazing about this walking? This is an imperative to us. So we should feel that. There's a weightiness to it. But the imperative here, it's a walking that God does in us and through us. It's not something that we add on to the gospel. And the reason we can say that is because of God's word is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts to the bone and marrow of who we are. Verse 7, all the verbs in it, you're like, oh, great. I thought I was done with diagramming sentences. All the verbs in it, except for Thanksgiving, are passive It's something being done to you by God. Wow. It's this kind of receiving and walking that God is doing the work in us and through us. And that's important because it highlights that what foremost these Colossians are to do and foremost what this group of Christians in Gresham is supposed to do is to remain in Christ, right? That's what we do but it's something that God has already done and is doing in us so that we will remain in Christ. And again, this is true for us today. So if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if that's you, God has rooted you in this kind of way in Christ Jesus. That's true of you, thus saith the Lord right here in Colossians chapter 2. It's God who built you up in Christ and has established you in the faith. He is the builder, right? That's amazing. So in that kind of way, just think about how verse 7 ends. Verse 7 is an amazing beginning to our text. 
what do the Colossians do? How do they respond to that reality? It's like all they're supposed to do is just respond by being abounding in thanksgiving. What a glorious and great gospel that God really is this good, this gracious, this true, this beautiful. So they just abound in thanksgiving because it's a radical kind of grace that Paul is talking about here, a grace that we're to walk in, that Paul's exhorting and encouraging them with. This is the grace in which you stand. This is the kind of grace in which you're to walk in. But then Paul doesn't stop there. Look down at verse 8 for the next imperative. Because this kind of radical grace fuels a life of radical obedience too. So verse 8 gives another imperative, another command. Paul commands, Christians are to also, chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's a really, really strong warning that Paul is giving us here. Paul is in essence saying, beware, look out, see to it. Take this really seriously, Colossians. Take this really seriously, Gresham Bible Church. Look out, be on your guard. Look out that no one takes you captive. That idea of captive here back in Paul's day, right? An invading army would come to this town or this village. They'd invade it. They'd take everyone in that town captive and take them off as slaves. That's what Paul's saying. Don't let anyone take you captive by empty deceit in this kind of way. Basically, Paul is saying, look out. Look out for this danger that's going to come up against the city walls of your heart, even the city walls of your church, and a Trojan horse is going to come in. And you are going to be led astray by this empty deceit, by this philosophy that's according to human tradition and not according to Christ. This is, again, I can't emphasize it enough. This is really strong language here and something we should take seriously. So how would they be taken captive in this kind of way? What does God's word say in front of you? By philosophy and empty deceit. And when Paul says philosophy here, this doesn't mean that you can get out of any philosophy class that you're supposed to take this next school year, okay? He's not talking about that kind of philosophy. Not every philosopher who's ever lived is like, oh, good, I don't never have to read philosophy. That's not what Paul is talking about here. It's not what he's saying. Philosophy here that Paul is using is basically the word he's using is the error that is this false teaching he's warning the Christians about. Philosophy is the word these false teachers would use for their false teaching. So, So he's saying, be aware, be on the lookout for this kind of false teaching of this kind of empty deceit. And the reason it's empty, you think, well, what's the difference between empty deceit and deceit? The reason it's empty is because of the fullness of who Christ is that we see all over Colossians. So he's saying, in view of the fullness of Christ Jesus, this deceit doesn't even add up. It's empty. It's empty deceit is what he's saying. That's the argument Paul is making. Here in a minute, when we get to the second half, Um, of our text, we're going to see in more detail. Paul kind of like peels back the layers and he lets us see more into the inner workings of what this empty deceit is, this philosophy that's based on human tradition. So we'll see that here in a few minutes. But I just thought, like if we remember, remember when we started Colossians? Colossians was written by Paul to a group of Christians at the city of Colossae that he never even met. He doesn't know these people. This guy named Epaphroditus comes and warns, hey, 
I'm concerned about this church that I planted. Can you write them to encourage them in the gospel to remain stable and steadfast? So Paul writes him a letter. Well, in essence, like he writes it to a group of Christians he never met then. Colossians is written to us today. Paul never met us personally, did he? But we believe this is God's word spoken to God's people for us to live in the gospel today. So in light of that, I think we have to pause here for a minute. We also live in a time, just like the Colossians, remember the beginning of our text, where there's a lot of competing spiritualities, vying for your mind, vying for your heart that are not in accordance to Christ. We're made of the same stuff these Colossian believers are. So we also could be in danger of being deceived, being seduced, being taken captive by something that's called wisdom, but that's more earthly than heavenly that's not in accordance to Christ. And so when we think about that, wow, I mean, like we could have lectures upon lectures about what all of those things probably are, right? In any time and place, including today. But we have to just be really clear when we're talking about this. It's a wisdom that's according to human tradition, that's according to, what does Paul say? The elemental spirits of the world. When Paul says that, what he's saying is, it's a kind of wisdom that's demonic. He's saying it's a wisdom that has its author is Satan. It's a demonic kind of wisdom. And it's an empty deceit. So, wow, okay, this is really strong language. Yeah, I'm glad you're picking up on what Paul's putting down. This is really strong stuff here. It's an empty deceit, not just in how it's not according to Christ, maybe in this deceit in what truth claims it makes or even what doctrine it has that could be empty deceit, but even it's an empty deceit if its form and function isn't in accordance to Christ, if it's in a mold that is anything different than the gospel that we've been given once for all time. So to help us, I'm gonna let this kind of land on us here for a minute, and I'd love to talk with you afterwards, after the member meeting or this week about any of this, but to help us, we wanna exposit the text and exposit our context. I thought it could be really helpful for us to briefly consider some examples of this kind of empty deceit in our day and age. Again, because Colossae and Gresham really aren't that different, whether one had a Chick-fil-A and one didn't. They're really not that different, right? Okay, so much could be said. And again, this isn't a lecture, but verse eight, it seems to identify and diagnose at least two teachings, two empty deceits in our day that bottom line we just have to be on the lookout for. And these are the two that, that come to mind. One is syncretism, and one is expressive individualism. Here's what I mean by syncretism. That's basically the philosophy or method of belief that says you combine, you merge different belief systems into one. It's like what was happening in the early church with Gnosticism, saying, hey, the body's all bad. Christ wasn't really fully God in flesh and spirit. So syncretism back in the day was to merge, combine Gnosticism and Christianity. The New Testament calls that out everywhere as a distortion of the gospel. It is not true. So syncretism, it is an empty deceit that we have to be on guard against. And the reason why I say that is think about the nature of this false teaching that the Colossians are confronted with that Paul's writing to them. It's a false teaching we're going to see here in a minute that they're familiar with. They're familiar with Jewish religious rituals and pagan spirituality and rituals. That sounds familiar to them. It would make sense that, yeah, we should be doing some of these things plus the gospel. 
So when I say syncretism, the same danger is true for us today because we're prone, prone to add things to the gospel and we're especially prone to do so when those are things that maybe sound good to us in our context, things that have some sort of inner logic to them. So whether those are belief systems true in our day, whether they're political ideologies that people want to fold into Christianity, into Christianity's mold, those things aren't according to Christ when they distort Christ and when they distract from the gospel. They are earthly more than heavenly in their means and their ends. So syncretism as a whole, something we have to be looking out for, it wants to attach these things to Christianity for these other purposes, for their own means and ends, not according to means and ends of the gospel. Gresham Bible Church, look out for that. And I'm just going to say this. We all love each other in this room. We have to be on guard specifically for the syncretism of combining our Christianity with politics, especially as the election cycle is building up again and again. Okay, No matter what your brand is of politics, I'm not here to talk about that. It's good that Christians want where they live, their city, their nation to flourish, right? So it's good that you care about good public policies and be involved in all that stuff. But the gospel is not politics. If you're combining politics and the gospel, you have a different gospel that you're walking in. That's what this confronts us with here in Colossians because it's a different mold than the gospel. And the reason we can say, wow, that's a strong word, Mike. Well, the reason why it's strong is because does syncretism hold up as a true teaching or is it empty deceit? It's empty because it doesn't let Christ be supreme. Anything that takes Christ off the throne is an empty deceit. Okay, so syncretism is an empty deceit because it doesn't fit with the truth that how did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord? So syncretism is an empty deceit. And syncretism fails, like just practically, logically, it fails because it can't hold the fullness of the gospel in it. It overly reduces the gospel to something that's not the gospel. And syncretism can't deliver on the promises that it promises you to fulfill. It's empty deceit. Okay, secondly, um, I wasn't going to say all that, but here we go. Secondly, expressive individualism is an empty deceit that all of us have to be on guard for. Probably a lot of you in this room, that phrase, that word you're familiar with already. But here's a helpful, just hang your hat on this real quick. Again, this, try not to make this a lecture. Expressive individualism holds that human beings, so what is it? Holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core and that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in relationships. Anything that challenges it is deemed oppressive. So in its essence, expressive individualism is really the worldview that's underneath and behind a lot of what's in our culture in our day and age. Okay, Expressive individualism is what's underneath and behind so many things in our culture, from transgenderism to abortion to pornography to the ethics of life and death to all of it. It's putting the self on the throne rather than God on the throne. It's an empty deceit because it's disordered and it puts the person at the center of reality rather than God. So really, when you think about it from a Christian lens, again, we're trying to diagnose this. Mike, how could you say that's empty deceit? 
The reason I can say it's empty deceit is because it's the same lie in Genesis, from Genesis 3. It's the same lie the enemy infected into our veins, the serpent injected into the human race at the beginning, putting us at the center rather than God. So it's a derivative of that same lie of wanting our truth, our identity, our justification, and our fulfillment outside of God. So you can be like, yeah, yeah, preach it, Mike. But if we stop there, what I'm also saying is a distortion of the gospel, okay? I want to share that expressive individualism is something we should be on the lookout for as a philosophy because it's in the air we breathe in our culture. And because it's in the air we breathe in our culture, you're breathing that air, okay? So that expressive individualism could manifest itself in the life of a local church and pull people apart into different factions because you're elevating yourself more than God's word and God's ways. And another reason why we need to be aware of this expressive individualism is to help us faithfully share the gospel in our city and our time and place. Think Paul back in Acts 17 in the city of Athens. We need to be aware of this so that we can faithfully share the gospel in our time and place. And the warnings Paul gives here, it's so easy. It's easy for me, at least. Maybe it's just a me problem. It's so easy for that to like fuel like, a, like man, strap up and let's go to war and it's us first them. And, and there's an element of that. There's spiritual warfare here that Paul is saying to be on guard for. But this gospel, this mentality that Paul's saying to be on the lookout for, it's not one that feeds an us versus them mentality in God's people because it's the same gospel we're to walk in, a gospel of grace and truth, because the gospel moves us towards people, not away from people, like Christ Jesus came to save us, right? So how do I say that? Why do I say that? Because it's the argument in the book of Colossians. Real quick, chapter four, verses six and seven, it sheds light on this warning and how we apply this needs to be in line with the argument of Colossians. Colossians four, verses six and seven, Paul says this, in view of these kind of warnings, Paul says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we're to look out for empty deceit as we walk in the gospel, and we should be ready to share the hope of the gospel with all of those who are seeking their fulfillment outside of Christ. And how does Colossians tell us to do that? With gracious speech that's seasoned with salt. That's the posture that Paul's calling us into in view of these warnings. I've heard this before, it resonates with me, maybe it resonates with you, and the reason it resonates with me is, Carrie can attest to this, I love food way too much, it's a me problem. Evangelism, we're talking about this, expressive individualism, syncretism, these things that are in the air we breathe in our day, and we want people to come to know Jesus. Evangelism is basically one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Okay, so this doesn't fuel shaking our fist at the world. It fuels we're beggars too. That's why we need Jesus, okay? And we wanna share the fulfillment only Christ can give with other people. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. So let's tell people where to find food and it's in Christ Jesus. All right, there's, there's so much in this text. Uh, 
Real quick, verses 9 through 15, like, wow, there's so much here. Paul then gives reasons why Christ is superior to all these other religions, to all the other spiritualities. In essence, the argument Paul is making here, he's saying there's nothing you need to find anywhere else outside of Christ, right? The fullness of Christ is a real fullness. Why go to anywhere else? Why would you want to settle for anything less than Christ is what Paul is saying here. Now look down with me at verses 13 through 15 and just hear the remarkable statement of the gospel we see here in Colossians, verses 13 and 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here we see in verses 13 and 15 that Christ is superior because in only in Christ are we forgiven. And in verse 13, Paul just rips the band-aid off. In love, he's really blunt, and he just tells you the truth about yourself. Outside of Christ, the Colossians were dead. Outside of Christ, we are dead. They were spiritually dead. And think Princess Bride language. They were dead, dead, like really dead. The dead, dead outside of Christ, okay? And why were they spiritually dead, does God's word tell us? Because of their trespasses. Because of our trespasses is why we would be spiritually dead. So what does God have to do to make them alive? Doesn't God have to deal with something here our text is telling us? He has to deal with, this is God's word that's saying this, in order to make us alive, God has to deal with the record of debt that stands against each of us with its legal demands. That has to be dealt with in order for you to come alive spiritually. And this word debt that's in verse 14, really what it's saying, I, I don't, want you to, don't want you to miss this. It's saying that each of us have an IOU towards God, okay? It's an IOU that's a debt because of our sin that we owe a holy God. It's a personal IOU with God. And it's a debt that must be repaid. A debt that's either from the sins that we've done or the good things we've left undone. But either way, we have a debt, our passage here in Colossians is telling us. And why is that? Because the nature of who God is. Because he's holy. Because he's just. And because he's holy and just, he can't just ignore this debt. He can't pretend it doesn't exist. He can't give us an easy sentence and just give us community service. The debt has to be paid for in view of God's holiness and his justice. And when you think about it, God's justice, what kind of justice is it? It's a justice that's consistent with the character of God, and God is infinite. So God's infinite justice demands an accounting of this debt, and it's a debt we can never repay. And the reason we can never repay it is because God is infinitely holy, and I am finite. So how can a finite creature pay an infinite debt? You can't. You can't do that. So think about it like this. Some of you in this room, you may be nodding, and, and if, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, 
we as Gresham Bible Church are really glad you're here. We want to just put the gospel in front of you in all of its goodness and glory and truth. If you're thinking right now, Mike, yeah, I see as a Christian why you might think that, but like when I die someday, I'm just going to trust that my good deeds have outweighed my bad, right? So here's this debt, but you know, it's not really that big a deal, and I've done all this good things, and I intend to do all this good stuff. So the scales at the end, oh, God's going to say, because he's just, hey, Mike's good deeds have outweighed his bad. But think about that approach in view of what God's word is saying it. The good deeds are what you should have been doing the whole time anyway. It does not do away with one ounce of your sin. So you have a debt to pay to a holy God. So this empty deceit and these false spiritualities that Colossians is pointing us to and warning us against, they can't fix our biggest problem, the problem of our sin in the face of a holy God. That's the dynamics of what's happening here in Colossians. So how's the problem resolved? How's our debt dealt with? By God, nailing it to the cross. So at the cross, you see the absolute supreme supremacy of Christ Jesus, where he took the debt, each of us in the room, me too, the debt we owe this holy God, and what did Jesus do? He took the debt upon himself. He made my debt his debt, and then he received in himself the full punishment and penalty of the sin that I deserve. Jesus took my debt, made his, his debt, and then he took the punishment upon himself. Christ Jesus, the infinite Son of God, in finite form as man, suffered the infinite holy wrath of God's justice in my place, in your place. Jesus, Christ Jesus, is supreme because Christ Jesus is the only sufficient payment for your debt. That's what Paul is saying here in Colossians. So my IOU to a holy God, your IOU to a holy God has been canceled because the love of God was poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. It was nailed to the cross, right? Apply that to each of us. Each of our sins functionally is what nailed Christ to the cross. My sins did that to Christ. But what did Christ do at the cross? He nailed my debt to the cross. This is a truth and a gospel that is beyond and above any spirituality in the world, right? It fulfills our deepest need. And how does our text end here in verse 15? Not only, not only, uh, not only does God offer us forgiveness at the cross and cancels this debt, what else did God do at the cross? At the cross, what seemed like God's defeat was actually his triumph. At the cross, the supreme worth and goodness of Jesus was proven for all of eternity. Christ triumphed over sin and death and Satan himself, thus saith the Lord here in Colossians 2. So look at verse 15. What does God's word say? At the cross, Christ was what? Victorious, not kind of victorious, all the way victorious over all powers and authorities. What did he do to them? He disarmed them. He took the stinger away and he put them to open shame. In his death and resurrection, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. 
So whatever the spiritual powers are, the spiritualities, the authorities that might appear in the Colossians day and in our day to hold authority in this world, think prince of the power of the air kind of stuff, those authorities are already defeated in Christ Jesus. Because of the cross, they have an expiration date on them. The language of this is so triumphant and victorious, but not in a way that any of us would have written the story. It took the death of Christ in my place to be this triumphant. The gospel is beautiful. So let's live into this here briefly. If you're a Christian, because of the cross, what does God's word say? Your debt was nailed to the cross. It's finished. Your debt is fully paid for. That means the accuser of your soul, Satan, he can't make any accusations against you that haven't already been fully paid for at the cross. He's lying to you because that's what he is. He's a murderer and a liar. That's what Jesus calls him. He is the enemy of your soul. There is nothing the enemy can accuse you of that wasn't nailed to the cross that hasn't been fully paid for by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot here, but do you see how the forgiveness of Christ shows his superiority, a superiority that's complete and full. And this kind of forgiveness that, forgiveness that gives us new life, a new nature, and a new identity. And again, the fulfillment of this that's in the gospel is like no other fulfillment the spiritualities in the world have to offer. Doesn't even compare. It's empty compared to the fullness of the gospel. So think about that for a minute, like maybe put a point on it. Our world is telling us again and again that we find our true identity from inside of us, right? Like my true identity is buried deep, deep underneath my gluttony and my pride and how much I like food. Somewhere in there is my true identity, right? But in view of this gospel, I need a better identity than that, right? If my identity is only from inside of me, Man, that's going to change with my emotions, with what I've eaten for the day, with my circumstances. It's an identity that is unstable at best and temporary. But in the gospel, we're offered an identity that has real substance to it. It's not empty. So again, I want us just to, to apply Colossians to us and walking in this gospel that we've received. So think of the gospel the identity gives us And it's an identity that's what? It's from outside of us. It's in view of the cross. And because it's in view of the cross, it's an identity that's secure because it's grounded in God's character. It's an identity that flows from the very forgiveness of God, an identity that's been purchased by the loving blood of Christ Jesus on the cross. So if you don't hear anything else today, I know this is a lot. I really want you to hear me. Your identity, Christian, is not in your record of debt. Your identity is not in your record of debt. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. Amen? There's a a quote I want to share with you that highlights this. It's from someone who I appreciate very much. Jackie Hill Perry, she says this, I don't believe it is wise or truthful to the power of the gospel to identify oneself by the sins of one's past or the temptations of one's present, but rather to only be defined by the Christ who's overcome both for those he calls his own. Amen? 
Amen. All right. Second movement in our text, we're going to see Colossians is amazing. In verses 16 through 23, we're going to see that the substance belongs to Christ. Remember, there's two therefores. There was one therefore at the beginning of verse 6. There's a therefore again at the beginning of verse 16. It's continuing the argument that Paul is making. So we're going to see in verse 16 through 23, again, he kind of peels the curtain back a little bit, and he tells us more about this false teaching, this empty deceit that is confronting the Colossian believers. And it was an empty deceit that basically was going around the city of Colossae and that whole region. It's this empty deceit, false teaching that said you had to add on certain things to the gospel, certain religious rituals or steps you had to take to be more clean before God. That was the false teaching that we're seeing here in Colossians. But in view of this, Paul is telling the Colossians, hey, because of the gospel and what God has done for you in canceling your record of debt, be who you already are. You're already cleansed by the gospel. You don't need more soap, is what he's saying here. You're already cleansed because of Christ, not anything you can add or subtract from the gospel. So Paul is saying here, kind of the essence of these like rituals he's talking about, if you studied verses 16 through 23, or maybe as you've been reading Colossians, don't they sound a lot like the Old Testament rituals and practices, right? These things you had to do to become clean before God. But Paul is saying these rules and regulations and rituals, they don't apply to those who are in Christ Jesus. And why don't they, they apply? Our text answers the question. Look at verse 17. Because these Old Testament rituals, the whole point was they pointed to Christ Jesus. And now that he's come and fulfilled the law, there's no more need for these shadows because the substance belongs to Christ. So that can sound like really like theological, spiritual language, but it, it, it is, but it's a lot more than that. Paul is getting really practical here. He's pastoring these Colossians really practically, and this word has practical application for us today, too. Paul's main concern for, was, for the Colossians was for them not to be overwhelmed by those who stressed out about these religious rituals and thinking they had to do or don't do all these other things to be really spiritually clean. Paul's concerned about that for them. He's warning them. And why is he warning them about that? Because these rituals, when you boil them all down, they're forms of self-righteousness. They're out of step with the gospel. They're adding on to the supremacy of the gospel in Christ Jesus. That is not consistent with the gospel because the gospel is full. We've seen the fullness of Christ Jesus throughout Colossians. And remember just a few minutes ago what we looked at, who disarmed the authorities on the cross? Was it your self-righteousness that did that? It was Christ Jesus. It was God who did that through Jesus. So there's nothing you can add to the gospel to make yourself more acceptable to God. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more clean before God. That's what's happening here in our text. That's what Paul is unfolding for the Colossian believers and what God's word is unfolding for us here today. And this is because our standing, this is true for you if you're in Christ Jesus, your standing with God is not based on your performance, but it's based on the perfect performance of Jesus, period, full stop. That's what Colossians is saying here. 
So Paul, he's cutting right to the heart of the matter here in our text. He's saying that all these outward regulations, they might appear to be spiritually beneficial. They might even sound really good. Someone's selling these here, just like people in our day are selling some of the same stuff. It sounds really good. It's packaged really well. It has marketing dollars behind it. It can even sound wise. Yeah, yeah, I should do these things. But Paul is saying here, these outward rules and rituals and regulations, they can only deal with the outside. And the problem is inside. The problem is our heart. Religious performance and rules and rituals can't change your heart. That's what Colossians is showing us here. Only the proven love of Christ Jesus on the cross from outside of you can change you from the inside out. That's what we should be most concerned with, the cleanliness of our heart before our good and gracious God. No amount of external rules can fulfill us or reorder our loves to worship Christ Jesus in the way he's worthy of, to walk in this gospel that we've received. That's what Paul is applying here, and I hope you're hearing what God's word is saying to each of us today. When you take a minute and think about that, I think it's really interesting. In my heart, I have this tendency to like push against that. Or like, yeah, maybe I struggled with some self-righteousness in the past, but I get it. It's the fullness of the gospel. But if we are being really honest, if truth serum was injected into each of our hearts, we're prone, each of us, to self-righteousness similarly to this, towards rules and self-made religion, aren't we? We're all prone to that in different kinds of ways. And we might snicker at that, like what's described here in verses 16 through 23. Like, yeah, I don't struggle with that, Mike. That's not my struggle. But each of us struggle with self-righteousness because each of us need Christ Jesus in the fullness of the gospel to forgive our sins. So here's what I want us to think about. Throughout history, for those of you that are familiar with church history, the struggle, the battle is always to hold fast, stable and steadfast, to not shift your hope from the gospel. The tendency is always to add to the gospel or subtract to the gospel. It's like we're hardwired to want to earn God's acceptance, just like what's happening here in Colossians. And Colossians is showing us, though, that self-righteousness, it isn't in tune with this gospel we're to walk in. It's not in tune with a sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ Jesus. Because when you think about it, self-made religion, it just doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. It can't fulfill its promises, and it doesn't fix our biggest problem, the debt of our sin in the face of a holy God. So remember, the beginning of our text started those glorious verses in verse 6 and 7. We're to walk in Christ as we receive Christ as Lord, and that's by what? By grace through faith, not by our performance. It's not on our merits that we walk with Christ, but it's on the merits of Christ. So our tendency to distort the gospel with our own efforts, with our own moral performance, with our own righteousness, to kind of try to justify ourselves, that's real, and it's something we have to look out for and be on guard for, whether we see that in ourselves or not, because we're made of the same stuff the Colossian believers were. When I was thinking about this, 
it, it's kind of like this story I heard. So there's this tribe that lives kind of deep in the jungle, and the best source of food for them is they try to trap and kill monkeys and eat monkeys. I, I don't know if it's good. I'm sure it's delicious. But they found, they struggled with how do we catch the monkeys to do this? Well, they had, I don't know how they did deep in the jungle, but I read this story. They had these um, like two liter bottles, right? Like maybe for Coke. They would cut the two liter bottle in half. The end that has the opening, they would use as part of their trap. And what they would do to trap these monkeys, they'd put that half of the two liter bottle picture with the hole that a monkey would reach through. On the other end, as they set this trap, they would put something shiny whether a piece of metal or glass, something shiny, and they'd lay them all over their trap line. And you know how they catch the monkeys? The monkeys reach through that and they grab on to the shiny object and they won't let go no matter what because it's shiny and I gotta have it. They won't even let go as the tribesmen walk their trap line and kill each monkey along the way. Right before the moment of death, the monkey doesn't care. It is holding on to that shiny object for dear life. The reason I share that with you is I think that highlights and illustrates how we can be easily trapped by our own desire to hold on to our own righteousness, to our own ways of making ourselves clean before God, right? We want to shine on, hold on to that shiny object, but the gospel is telling us to let go and to hold on to the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus. So this, again, comes to mind because this is the same argument that the book of Colossians is making. We want to exposit and draw out what's in God's word in front of us. So GBC, we're not to go after the shiny false teachings, the self-righteousness, and the gospel distortions in the world. We don't hang on to those things. Rather, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him through the gospel. And again, this, I'm just drawing out what's here in Colossians. The way to overcome the world, end of verse 23 says, these rules and rituals, they don't really fight self-indulgence. They don't fight the problem in our heart of sin. How we overcome the world and our battle with self-righteousness is nothing less than the supremacy and the, the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. That's what God's word is telling us. So let Christ be our treasure and our prize. Because only if Christ is your superior satisfaction will you be able to fight the indulgence of your sin. And there's a quote I want to share with you as we move to a close. It's by an old saint named Thomas Chalmers who says this, The best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. Okay, that's what Colossians is pointing us to. So as we close, only the cross of Jesus resolves the problem of our sin before a holy God. We don't add to the cross. We don't subtract from the cross. Whatever the empty deceit might be of the day, there will always be empty deceits that Christians, that the church have to deal with. The empty deceit of trying to add or subtract from the gospel. So think about it like this. Our text said, my debt was nailed to the cross. So thinking about the cross and in God's providence, it's not by accident that we have recorded in God's word for Christians of all time, the story of the thief on the cross, right? 
the thief who was next to Jesus as he died. The thief on the cross is the story for the church in every generation and our battle against self-righteousness and trying to earn God's favor of adding to the gospel. Someone once said this, the thief had nails through both hands so that he could not work and a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God, and he took it. That's what Colossians is saying. The fullness of the gospel cannot be added to because of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. It's only the supremacy of Christ in the gospel that's sufficient enough to save us, and it's only the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel that's sufficient for us to live the Christian life with all of its exhortations and warnings. So Gresham Bible Church, may we who received Christ Jesus our Lord so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. Lord, for those that are struggling, may they know your sufficiency. For those who need wisdom, Father, lift their eyes to Jesus. Father, for those who need strength, ground them in the gospel. Lord, if there are any here today that haven't yet trusted in Jesus, I pray that you will draw them to yourself by your Spirit. May then taste and see that you're good and sufficient to meet the problem of our sin. Lord, I pray you will grow us as a church deeper and deeper into your word and into your ways. May we be a gospel people who walk in the gospel and are abounding in thanksgiving. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.